Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox. Episode 4 The police station is a bustling open space even more tightly coiled with tension than the streets outside its unwelcoming edifice. Danny's been here before, most recently to Spring Knox, and it always puts him on edge. The slightly crooked rows of shabby desks are strewn with papers and sandwich crumbs, while cigarette butts float at the bottom of abandoned coffee cups. It makes him think of work done in a hurry, of missed details and unnecessary mistakes. This is a place that can barely keep up with the monstrous city it claims to serve and protect. To the men in this building, Danny knows New York is an angry beast, and they're all just ants trying to force it into submission. To Danny, it's the Coney Island Cyclone. To Knox, well, if Danny had to guess, to Knox, the city is a badly wounded kid she won't give up on. Not that she'd ever admit it. The thought gives him a push. He's here to do a job. The desk sergeant directs Danny toward the back of the squad room where the detectives are clustered. Most of the desks here face each other. Danny's eyes scan for Detective Falcone, but he's nowhere in sight. Good. This will go easier if the lieutenant isn't around for another visit by Miss Knox's lawyer. Shoved into a corner, no doubt with malice aforethought by his own so-called brothers on the force, is Ray Beaumont. Not yet 40, Beaumont had gone from uniformed patrolman to plainclothes detective on dedication and hard work alone. But he did so as a black man, a crime no amount of hard work would exonerate. Beaumont is scanning a report as Danny approaches. His dark tie and tweed vest are businesslike and well-fitted. The horn is near his hand, placed so he can snatch it up as soon as it rings. He's the ideal cop, Danny thinks, respectful, competent, and with a moral compass set on doing the right thing as his true north. It was Ray who called Danny when Falcone had Morgan in the box. Beaumont looks up when Danny reaches his desk, unable to hide his surprise. Danny, what are you doing here? Danny ignores the unspoken, is Morgan all right? Nice to see you too, Ray. Beaumont blinks, 
his concern giving way to embarrassment. He offers Danny his hand. Sorry, you just caught me by surprise is all. Have a seat. The wheeled chair next to Beaumont's desk squeaks as Danny settles into it. The sound is one more detail that adds to the building's ramshackle feel. Danny knows his plaid suit and shiny shoes are out of place. He doesn't belong here. This is a house of marital disputes and petty theft, a place where disorderly drunks end up. He wants to get the information he came for, to warn Beaumont about Knox's lead and head back to the office as soon as possible. How can I help you, Danny? Sorry to say, this'll have to be quick. I have a meeting soon. Danny comes right to the point, keeping his voice low. Werner Klein. To his credit, Beaumont doesn't even blink. Danny knows he's curious. He also knows Ray has a hard time saying no to anything that might help Knox. What about him? Beaumont asks. Did you know he was an associate of Volkan Sivarek? Again, Beaumont's self-control is admirable. His eyes never leave Danny's as he leans forward and places his elbows on the desk. No, I didn't. This is what Morgan's looking into? Danny tilts his head in a way that he hopes Beaumont will read as, I'm afraid so. Is there anything you can tell me about him? Beaumont breaks eye contact, searching the squad room for something safe to focus on. Or maybe just to make sure no one is eavesdropping. If you're asking me about Klein, then Morgan told you how I know him. His eyes return to Danny. Didn't she? She told me he's a doctor you've been seeing, but that's all. Beaumont's silence speaks volumes. But Danny is patient. He likes Ray, and the last thing he wants to do is make him feel ambushed, exposed. But this line of work has a way of taking you to places you'd rather not go. And Ray knows that. Finally, Beaumont says, It pays to do your homework, so I looked into Dr. Klein just before I started going to him. He's originally from Belgium. There wasn't much to dig up about him from that time in his life. But his record since entering this country is clean. He started out working in weapons research for the U.S. government before switching fields. When did he emigrate? Back in 24, I think. If you need to know exactly, I'll have to go through my files at home and get back to you. I'd appreciate that. Can I ask you what kind of doctor he is? Beaumont's mouth twists before he whispers. He's a psychiatrist. Damn, thinks Danny. He specializes in veterans. Beaumont goes on. Shell shock, trauma, that sort of thing. The war has a way of staying with you. So I've heard. Danny is starting to wish he'd arranged to meet Ray somewhere private, instead of simply dropping by the precinct. But after Knox's close call at Penn Station, followed by the weird recorded message Sivarek left for her, naming Klein and two others as suspects in his death, it was starting to feel like time wasn't on their side. What's your gut tell you about Klein? Has he ever given you any reason to think he might... Might what? Beaumont interrupts. Boil a man down to his bones? You realize how ridiculous this sounds. 
Danny chuckles. Well, sure, when you put it that way. But this is Morgan we're talking about. Beaumont nods. How worried should I be? Danny hesitates. Ray doesn't deserve any of this. Under different circumstances, he and Beaumont might be pushed together because of the way they're both forced to navigate the world, as outsiders. But whereas Danny might, in his everyday life, pass for a man attracted to women, Beaumont will always be judged by the color of his skin, even with a lifetime of service to his country and his city. His life as a black detective is complicated enough without also being the one cop in New York who trusts Knox's instincts. Danny shrugs. Too soon to say. But keep your eyes open. This feels like a bad one. Aren't they all? True. Danny stands and pushes his chair back, and the wheels squeak again. He gives Ray a reassuring nod as the two men shake hands. This conversation never happened. But if I come across anything of relevance about Klein, you'll be the first to know. Thanks, Danny. For whatever it's worth. The man has helped me. A lot. I think Morgan's barking up the wrong tree this time. I'll tell her you said so. You do that. And make sure she stays out of trouble. Easier said than done. Beaumont smiles with one side of his mouth. The other remains wilted. The detective nods, and his eyes return to the neatly stacked papers on his desk. Knox is standing outside a dark wooden door on the fourth floor of a decrepit building. She took the stairs to avoid any tenants, assaulted the entire way by the smell of mold and rat poison. She knows this is Craddock's place, or was. The man's been dead for more than two weeks, but something she saw after listening to Sivarek's message led her here. She holds her breath, listening for activity inside the apartment. Not a sound. No answer to her knocks on the door. The hallways in this mostly abandoned tenement are dark as puddles of ink, but a bare yellow bulb illuminates a corner near the stairs. The wallpaper is torn to shreds, and weird stains mar the tiled floor. Knox looks both ways down the corridor. There's no one in sight, so she shoves her hand into her coat pocket, pulls out her lockpicks, and goes to work. Buildings like this are where the city's poorest come when they have no other option. Outside, the cold wind howls. And, in Manhattan's less ignored neighborhoods, Knox knows, basement boilers pump heat through pipes to hold back the late winter chill. Gas stoves cook hot meals. Families gather around fireplaces. The people taking shelter in this carcass of a building are different. They lack everything, and too often, their poverty kills them. She patiently works the keyhole, for once thankful for the awful cheap locks used by slumlords all across the city. And moments later, she hears a click. A cold phantom hand squeezes the back of Knox's neck, as she takes one last look down the hallway, pushes the door open, and steps into the darkness of the flat. She knows that sometimes crossing a threshold is more than simply entering a space, and this feels very much like one of those times. She waits for her eyes to adjust to the gloom, breathes deeply through it, 
More mold. Decay. Body odor. Something else. Something subtle she can't quite identify. Something that doesn't fit in, but not really a scent. A feeling. Nox's pupils dilate, and her surroundings come into focus, emerging from the gloom like ghosts. She's standing in the living room. There's an old brown couch near a window, faded and sagging with heavy use, but not much else. The dull glow of a street lamp spills in through the window, weakly illuminating the sofa, but dying before it can reach the floor. Outside, she sees the building next door, its bricks and fire ladder just a few feet beyond the window. Knox wonders if the people who lived there ever felt trapped. Then she remembers that the view from her own kitchen window isn't much better. And not for the first time, Knox finds herself missing Puerto Rico, her mother's home, with its vibrant green mountains, its white shores, its deep blue oceans, and its sunny skies. Knox stands still and listens. There's no sound coming from inside the apartment. No footsteps, no breathing, nothing being dragged across a surface. No snoring, no radio, no water running, no sound of a body readjusting itself on a chair or an old mattress. She reaches out and paws blindly in the dark for a switch, finds it next to the door, and a weak, yellow light flickers to life overhead. The round lamp attached to the ceiling has a fuzzy dark blob obscuring its center, made up of moth swings. The light is full of dead insects, hundreds of tiny trapped corpses. The place is small. Water stains mar the ceiling and walls. Peeling wallpaper exposes old yellow glue. The wooden floor is a mottled dirty brown, speckled with a dingy white that dripped from a sloppy ceiling job years ago. Knox recognizes the palette of poverty. The entire building is painted with it. Something dark darts across the floor in front of her and disappears under the sofa. A rat. Twitching corpses. Chittering from underexposed ribs. Hollowed eye sockets framed by torn flesh. Naked, slithering tails and tiny, bloody snouts. A couple of years ago, she worked a case in which dead bodies kept popping up, hollowed out by rodents. Then she found out the animals were the evidence disposal unit, not the killers. She solved the case. The bastards got what was coming to them. But the images of empty torsos, full of squirming vermin, gnawing away at human flesh, are just one more gallery in the museum of awful memories filling her brain. Out the window, the fire ladder sways in the wind, then twists into a tangle of angry serpents, black as the stain that surrounded Sivarek's bones. Someone whispers in Knox's ear, and she turns toward the voice. There's no one there, but something in this place is calling to her. This time, she doesn't banish it. She allows it to guide her. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Knox follows the whispers into the kitchen. An ancient icebox stands in the corner, next to a small yellow table and two chairs. The bottom of one sags, its seat disemboweled. On the other chair rests a small rag doll with braided yarn for hair. Its black eyes stare at nothing. Knox doesn't want to imagine children living here. The whispers come and go, like a mosquito circling her head and occasionally sweeping past her ear. On impulse, she picks up the doll and stuffs it into her coat. Past the kitchen is a dark hallway leading to rooms on either side. On the right is the bathroom. Knox spots a pull chain hanging from the ceiling and yanks the light on, sending roaches scattering. Brown stains. Dried blood? Cover parts of the sink. The clawfoot tub amplifies the pulse of its dripping tap. Knox crosses the hallway and enters the other small room, and suddenly the air is much colder. The light in here doesn't work, but in the yellowish glow from the bathroom, she can make out a mattress on the floor and a small wooden table pushed against the far wall. There is no chair. The closet door is hanging off its hinges, but there's nothing inside except an old pair of men's boots. 
The whispers grow more insistent as Knox navigates the dark room. She can make out words, but they have no meaning. Just a series of elongated syllables that add up to nothing. Detroit. Me. There's something here. The table is bare. She pulls it back and touches the wall where it stood, looking for a crack, a secret space. She finds none. She walks the room slowly, paying attention to the floorboards. None of them are loose or chipped. The whispers draw her back to the table, calling to her. Knox wraps her knuckles lightly across its surface, listening searching for a hollow. But the wood is solid. She runs her hands underneath it and finds something taped to the bottom right corner. She pulls it free, a small flat thing wrapped in brown paper. It feels cold to the touch. The phantom mosquito tickles her eardrum. As if she were suddenly out of time, Knox rips the paper off and holds its contents up to the dim light from across the hall. It's a small book, about the size of a deck of cards and bound in black leather. Old black leather, dry and cracked, and completely absent of a title. She turns it sideways and lets her fingers search the covers and the spine, but there are no clues to be found in its weathered surface. Then she opens it. The writing on the page is thick, visible even in the scant light. There are spaces between the groups of symbols, which suggests each group is a word, but nothing she sees makes any sense. Knox is familiar with everything from Korean and Russian to Polish and Hebrew, from signs all over the city. She's seen hieroglyphs in books and come across other written languages during the war. These symbols resemble none of them. Knox stops trying to decode the lines and looks at another page. There's more writing on it, but also a drawing, an oval shape, crisscrossed by intersecting lines. More unfamiliar symbols surround the illustration. Knox shifts the book to one hand and runs her fingers over the writing. It feels more like touching a scar than ink on paper. Then the wall in front of her moves. Its center pushes out, pregnant with some unspeakable horror fighting to be born. Something outside is trying to get in, Knox recoils, stumbling against the edge of the mattress. The whispers grow louder. It's now two voices, one close to each ear. One a phlegmy wet thing, the other a feminine hiss. They chant faster and aren't uttering the same words. The cacophony is too much. She has no idea what they're saying, but it feels to her like desperation. Demanding, commanding. Knox closes the book. The voices fall silent. The wall is just a wall again. Knox clutches the edge of the table to steady herself, to catch her breath. 
She stares at the book in her hand, like it might come to life at any moment. What the fuck? Any sane person would drop the damn thing and get the hell out of this godforsaken place. Any sane person would set it on fire and watch it burn, then scatter the fucking ashes. Knox does none of those things. Instead, she crouches down to recover the discarded wrappings, shrouds the book once again, and shoves it deep in her coat pocket. That's when she notices the photos. They stick out from under the jostled mattress, revealed when she stumbled into it. Knox picks them up and moves back into the hallway to study them in the light from the bathroom. Two of the photographs show a girl in a white dress. In the first, she's standing in a room that looks endless, surely a trick of the camera. The second shows the same girl standing in a field, her hands at her sides and a smile on her face. The other three photos depict a large stone obelisk against a cloudy sky, like Cleopatra's Needle in Central Park, only much darker. In two of the images, hooded figures stand next to the obelisk, tiny in comparison. Something in her brain jumps, tells her she knows what this thing is, that she's seen it before. But the memory hovers just at the edge of her awareness, refusing to come into focus. The last photo shows a close-up of the obelisk, edge on. Both of the visible sides are covered with engravings, characters identical to those in the book. Knox flips the photo over. Scrawled on the back, in haste by a trembling hand, are the words, Black Sea Codex. So that's the title of the book. But what the hell was Craddock doing with it? Did it drive him to kill those people? To go after Sivarek? Knox can see the pieces of the puzzle, but she can't yet tell how they fit together, or what the picture is supposed to look like. Frustration boils up to anger in her chest. What the hell has that old geezer gotten me into? A new sound shatters the brief silence of the flat. One Knox has been braced for since she got here. Footsteps. She quickly slips the photos into an inside pocket. Her instincts tell her to flee, or stay quiet, to blend into the darkness and wait for whoever is out there to reveal themselves. Everything else inside her pushes her back out toward the living room. Standing in the middle of the room is a girl. The kid is wearing a dark gray coat that's too big for her and hides her hands. She was outside, in the cold. That makes the pink lily in her top buttonhole stick out like a sore thumb. Her straggly blonde hair obscures most of her face, so it's tough to clock her age. Twelve, maybe? She looks like she's been standing there for hours. Knox approaches slowly, unsure how she should play this. Decides she'll have to wing it. Hey, sweetie, are you okay? The girl says nothing. She doesn't move. Knox lowers herself to a knee, hoping she'll seem less threatening. My name's Morgan. Do you live in this building? More silence. Did you know the man who used to live here? The girl just stares at her through the stringy tangle of her hair. Knox considers her next move, then remembers the first of the three items she recovered here. Retrieving the rag doll from her left-hand pocket, she holds it up. Is this yours? 
The girl tenses and savagely snatches the doll out of Knox's hand. Knox is caught off guard by how fast she moves, but she's even less prepared for the shock of familiarity as the girl's violent motion flings her messy hair to one side, revealing her face. It's the girl from Craddock's photographs. Knox barely has time to register that fact when the window behind her shatters. Then comes the eruption of light and flash of searing heat, an incendiary. She doesn't even turn. Instinct kicks in, and she dives forward, pushing the kid to the floor and shielding her with her body. Only then does she chance a look over her shoulder. Orange flame blossoms up the wall, devouring old wood and cheap construction materials, peeling paint bubbles up and burns. Wallpaper hisses like an angry ghost and curls in on itself. The fire moves quickly through the tinderbox flat on a spreading puddle of flammable liquid and broken glass. Fucking Molotov cocktail. Who the hell? The flames haven't yet reached the apartment door. She pushes off the girl and screams at her to run, even as the kid kicks off the floor and bolts. Knox isn't far behind. Outside the apartment, she notices two things at once. The first is the top of the girl's head vanishing down the stairs. The second is a body on the floor a few feet from the door, a man face down. There's a hole in the side of his head. Thick black blood spreads beneath him like spilled ink. Someone got to him, but who? And why didn't she hear the gun? As she moves past, Knox sees that the man's dead open eyes are the same color as his blood. One of her assailants from Penn Station which means the Molotov thrower was one of them, too. Knox hits the stairs at a run, shouting, Fire! Fire! The whole way down to the ground floor. She slams into the front door so hard it sounds like a gunshot. She races into the alley next to the tenement, but the kid isn't there, and neither is the Molotov thrower. She looks up and sees a fourth floor window belching black smoke and orange light. There are no sirens in the distance yet, but she knows there will be soon. People from the burning building have started scurrying out into the cold night, most of them in pajamas and little else. She asks one of them, a balding elderly white man, if all his neighbors made it out. Before he finishes saying, how the hell should I know? Knox runs back inside. The first door is open, the apartment is empty. A lady opens the door a crack when she knocks on the second. The old woman's eyes are roomy, and her posture makes Knox think the earth is calling to her, pulling her down. There's a fire! Get out! The lady nods. She walks back in, probably to get some things. Knox finds other residents on the third, fourth, and sixth floors. The last apartment is occupied by a young, dark-skinned couple, who seemed not to understand her until she cries, Fuego! Then their eyes widen, and they move. As they descend the stairs, something huge crumbles, and the entire building shakes. Knox herds her remaining charges out of the tenement, hoping she got all of them, fearing she didn't. She exits onto the sidewalk once more, this time to the sound of approaching sirens. The tenement's former residents cluster together across the street, shivering in the cold, while their home is consumed before their eyes. Knox sleeps very little. The nightmares make it impossible. 
a French village on fire. Civilians burning as they run, the flames spreading like tentacles, reaching, while black clouds roil and boil like the ocean inverted. The sky swells and the clouds push down, extending tendrils of shadow that hungrily seek to touch the burning earth. Knox bolts awake and sits up, her skin clammy. The room is cold, she can see her breath. But at least it's night again. She wraps her robe around herself and pads across her apartment to the tiny table by the window facing the street. She pours herself a finger of whiskey and kicks it back, savoring the burn as she peers through the blinds. A car passes, its headlights causing the shadows from the slats to drift across her. Knox glances toward her armchair, sees her trench sitting undisturbed where she tossed it the morning before, remembering the thing she brought home with her. She wonders how soon she can expect a Molotov cocktail to come crashing through her window. Knox lights up while Danny talks. He faces her across her desk, but every so often his eyes drop to the small open notebook in his hand. There's no trace of the smile that usually brightens his clean young face. A small frown has taken up residence between his eyebrows. She's already filled him in on what happened at Craddock's place, shown him the photos, told him about the girl, the black-eyed thugs who tried to trap her inside the burning building. She doesn't mention the book. After the effect Siverex recording had on Danny, Knox has no intention of letting anyone close to her near the damn thing. There's only so much Beaumont was willing or able to say about Klein, Danny says as he finishes recounting his meeting with Ray. Under the circumstances, I can't say as I blame him. Word gets out that he's seeing a head shrinker. His life is suddenly a lot more complicated than it already is. Danny isn't telling Knox much she didn't already know. Ray has urged her to go see a psychiatrist any number of times. He's helping me, Ray would say. He can help you, too. Ray believes there's a solution to every problem. In her own way, Knox does, too. They just don't always believe in the same solution. For what it's worth, Danny goes on, Beaumont thinks Klein is a dead end, but because it's you, he's keeping an open mind. We agreed to stay in touch, share information as it comes to light. Knox exhales a cloud of smoke. She had wanted to talk to Ray about Klein herself, but she'd given priority to the vision that led her to Craddock's place. Danny going in her place has saved her time, but she knows she'll have to speak to Ray about all this soon. What about Thrain and Kovacs? Knox asks. Thrain is exactly what we thought, Danny confirms. A big-time mobster with delusions of respectability. He comes from old money, and he's turned what he inherited into an empire. Thrain Industries has its fingers in textiles, import-export, real estate. This goes on. He has properties all over the city. Everything from office buildings to crumbling tenements. All of it makes him look pretty legit. He even has a corner office on the 78th floor of the empty, sorry, the Empire State Building. Knox suddenly has the sick feeling of eyes on her back. She swivels her chair to look out her office's north-facing windows. Ten blocks up Fifth, the Empire State Building is lit up like a Christmas tree. 
and while it's too far away to see any of its windows clearly, she can't help imagining Thrain staring back at her. But underneath all that? Underneath all that is stuff everyone talks about, but no one can prove. I've heard from some musician friends that he has a stake in Nocturne, a private nightclub under the Morgan Library. You know, muses Knox as she turns back to face Danny. Under different circumstances, I might enjoy having a museum named after me. Danny scoffs. Don't be so sure. If I thought for even a second you had any relationship to J.P. Morgan, I'd be demanding a lot more money. Fair enough. What else? If my source is right, Thrain helps keep the hooch and drugs flowing in Nocturne. Looks like a snazzy joint. Shiny dresses and sharp suits, canaries and Cadillacs. He has his hooks in all of it. Thrain makes sure his wealthy friends go there to throw money around and partake of everything Nocturne has to offer. You know how rich people like their vices catered to them. Making a wisecrack about Danny's wealthy family is tempting, but Knox wants to focus on the matter at hand, so she presses on. What about Kovacs? He is Nocturne, right? Owns the joint and everything in it. Danny nods. He's the face and voice of the place. It's rare to see him outside the club. He rubs elbows with the upper crust of society and entertains the most dangerous criminals in the city. He's equally comfortable with both crowds. If you want something illegal and have the moolah to pay for it, Kovacs is your best friend. His club is also much larger than most people realize. Apart from the main lounge and bar that everyone knows about, there are a few more exclusive areas deeper inside. Exclusive. As in, illicit? Danny taps the side of his nose. Bingo. Rooms that aren't open to the general public. You need to be invited or a regular. There's a casino right underneath the bar, for example. Craps, slots, poker, roulette, blackjack, all the usual stuff. After that, the entertainment gets a bit more unsavory. Knox takes another puff from her cigarette. Go on. They hold illegal fights in the casino. Bare-knuckled boxing. Bloody stuff. Word is, they offer kids in boxing gyms all over town a nice bag of coin to come down and show what they got. Fighters who lose tend to disappear. What else? Danny checks his notes. Oh, underneath the casino, there's the opium den. There's an opium den underneath the casino that's underneath the club? Exactly. How many levels does Nocturne have? No idea, but there's also a brothel. Fancy dames. They play instruments, know how to play cards. And from what I hear, they sing like angels. Not cheap. The bottom line is, Nocturne's a place to indulge in every vice you can imagine. And probably some you'd prefer not to. And all you need is moolah. Knox doesn't bother hiding her contempt. Nocturne operates like the rest of the world. Money is the key that opens every door. Very profound, Socrates. Danny ignores the crack. There was a raid there a while ago. A few photos were taken. Then charges were dropped. Someone stepped in and helped make the whole thing go away. That tells you what kind of man Kovacs is, and what kind of friends he has. 
You're saying he knows where the skeletons are buried. That, and he knows the particular appetites of every politician in the city. Knox snuffs out the remains of the cigarette in the ashtray on her desk. All right, I get how Thrain and Kovacs are connected. But how does Klein fit in? He doesn't, Danny tells her. Not the way you're thinking. He's a scientist. He doesn't belong to the same category as the other two. How can you be so sure? Kovacs and Thrain are sharks in sharp suits. They're intelligent and devious. The city knows they're up to no good, but they can't be touched. Coppers won't go near them. They crave respectability, but they'll stab you through the heart with a smile on their face, wash their hands, and then go to a dinner party with a few senators. And Klein is different because... Klein is different because he has a real job, an education, and ties to the government. He's smarter than the other two, but he doesn't crave power or status. How are they all tied to Sivarek? Danny looks at Knox in surprise. You mean you don't know? Know what? Christ, Morgan, if I thought you were still in the dark, I'd have led with it. They're all founding members of the Odessa Club. The book, Knox thinks. This is about the goddamn book. You all right, Morgan? Danny asks. You look a little... I'm fine, Danny. Is that all you have? So far, I'm still digging. That gets a brief smile out of Knox, but it wilts almost immediately. Her thoughts are already on her next move. It's time I went to see Jiwan. Danny scowls at that. Be careful with him. Knox shakes her head. I swear, you and Abe are two of a kind. Neither of you has ever trusted Pack. Why? Gee, I don't know. Maybe because the last time you went to him for help, he used you to get a scoop on those Central Park suicides before you could collar the guy behind them. Or have you forgotten already? She hadn't. Two hot summers ago, teenagers had started to hang themselves in different locations all over the park. Knox kept getting flashes of an infinitely long black boa slithering into cribs and baby carriages. She became convinced someone was preying on troubled kids. The police were not. So she turned to Jiwan Pak, who had been covering the suicides for the Herald Tribune. Pak had helped Knox look into the kids' backgrounds for a common denominator. And then he jumped the gun and printed a story about Knox's investigation before she could narrow down the suspects, which only drove the predator into hiding. It was weeks before Knox finally tracked him down. It turned out that all the kids had run-ins with the same truant officer. The sick bastard got his kicks by giving them a sympathetic ear, winning their trust, then driving them to suicidal despair. No more kids died after that story was printed. Knox argues. You could make the case Pack scared that monster long enough to help me catch him before he struck again. Danny rolls his eyes. My point is that Pack's a man who deals in information. That means he likes information more than he likes people. Men like that always put their own agendas first. I'll keep that in mind, Knox says. Listen, why do you knock off for the night? Go see that fellow of yours. You earned it. Danny smiles as he stands up. Let me know how your meeting with Pack goes, he says on his way out. I want to know what he has to say. Knox waves him on his way 
as she fishes her address book out of her inside breast pocket. She flips through it until she finds Shiwan's number. Then she grabs her telephone by the stand, unhooks the receiver, and dials. Jiwan picks up on the second ring. Packard. It's Knox. Oh, hey. To what do I owe this unexpected pleasure? Can you meet me tonight? Ten o'clock? Sure. Where? The Horn and Hard Art at Union Square. What's the topic? Volkan Sivarek. Knox and Pack are sitting on opposite sides of a booth at the automat, but they're not looking at each other. This is how Pack likes to conduct meetings. He wants the sound of the machines and the people around them to drown out his conversations for anyone with an earshot. Around them, people stand in short lines in front of stacked vending machines, beneath backlit signs that read cakes, pies, and two that say sandwiches. Knox stares out the window while she talks. It's raining, and the lights of the city are smeared across the wet glass. But she can still make out the Chinese laundry across Broadway. An old man in the back of the place is washing something by hand. Red neon bleeds into the rivulets, snaking across her field of vision. Pack is watching everything in the automat except Knox, while she gives him a redacted version of what Danny found on Thrain, Kovacs, and Klein. The journalist's head nods from time to time confirming that he already knows a lot about these individuals. When she's done, he waits a moment before asking, You sure that's all? Knox looks at him. That's all for now, Shiwan. Now it's your turn. Pak takes a deep breath and continues to look around. Your secretary did a pretty good job, but he only scratched the surface, especially when it comes to Thrain. Pak pauses as if their conversation is suddenly taking a more dangerous turn. There's a bead of sweat on his temple, and under the table, his right leg bounces restlessly. Finally, he says, Thrain's biggest racket is political corruption. His money lines the pockets of police, politicians, judges, even newspaper editors. A few years ago, some dock workers became seriously ill and died soon after. It was a big deal. Investigators determined radioactive metals were to blame. They were found inside one of Thrain's ships, which was supposed to be full of textiles. The families wanted blood. The mob wanted the authorities out of the docks. Then Thrain got involved. The whole thing went away and everyone was happy. You know how many people found out through the papers? None. He's really careful about keeping his shady dealings where no one can see them and he makes sure he owns anyone who can. Thrain likes power, and he wants more. Pack then breaks his own rule and looks her square in the eyes. Now, how about you tell me what all this has to do with Sivarek? Knox gets right to the point. That book society of his, the Odessa Club, they're all members, Thrain, Kovacs, and Klein. Pack blinks. Interesting. And you suspect one of them was responsible for Sivarek's death? He pauses to consider the idea. Could be. I don't know much about Klein, but the other two are definitely capable of murder. 
Here's something else you may not know. There was an incident involving another of Thrain's cargo ships about a month ago, shortly after it birthed. Two of the crew were killed, both shot through the head from a distance, and a crate was stolen. Craddock, Knox thinks. What was in the crate? Books, Pack says. Just books. Some valuable ones, to be sure. And they were all meant for the Odessa Club. Do you have a manifest? As a matter of fact, Pack rummages through the satchel of Sivarek files he brought with him and hands Knox a heavily creased sheet of paper. There are a dozen books listed on it, but Knox has no trouble finding the one she's most interested in. Untitled Codex, Leather Bound. Knox feigns disappointment as she hands the manifest back to Pack. Odessa is in the Ukraine, isn't it? Hmm? Oh, yeah. It's on the shore of the Black Sea. You think the club's name has some relevance? Knox imagines the Codex burning a hole through her coat. Just thinking out loud. Morgan, how did Sivarek die? Word is he burned, but the police won't confirm. The police won't confirm because they don't have a clue. But you do? I can't tell you how it happened, Knox admits, but I can tell you what I saw. Fine, let's start with that. Nothing was left of him but the bones. Then he did burn. No, Knox says emphatically. This wasn't fire. I don't know what it was. The police thought I might have seen something like it during the war, but nothing I ever encountered could have done what I saw in that mansion. Off Pack's look, she adds, I know how crazy it sounds, she won. Believe me. But Sivarek knew he was going to die, and he believed one of those three men would end him. He told you that. As a matter of fact, he did. More than that, Knox isn't going to say. Pack is open-minded, but only to a point. Hearing her yarn about the old man's message, all the craziness that followed, isn't a test she's sure their uneasy friendship will survive. And something inside Knox is convinced she still needs him. Pack looks like he's made a decision and leans forward in his chair. Look, I don't know if this will help you, but after the Central Park thing, I feel like I owe you one. There might be a way for you to maybe start to understand just how deeply connected these men are. Whatever it is, count me in. No, listen to me first. Knox frowns. Okay. There's an event at Nocturne tomorrow night. A fundraiser to help Thrain launch his mayoral campaign. You know, because what this city really needs is another millionaire in office who hasn't spent a day walking the streets. Anyway, it'll be a who's who of power players. Kovacs is hosting, of course. Klein will be there, too. And before you ask me how I know that, I saw his name on the guest list. Again, Knox doesn't hesitate. You've got to get me in there, Jiwan. Not so fast. What is it? You also have to get dolled up. Fix your hair. Wear something long and slinky. Look like a dame for once, instead of a goddamn bulldog. Knox's eyes narrow dangerously. Is that it? That's it. Meet me in front of the Morgan Library. Eight o'clock. 
Don't be late. Pack gets up and walks away, coat collar flipped up and hat pulled down. Knox notices he's slightly hunched, as if trying to look smaller. On the table, the slice of cake he got out of one of the vending machines is untouched. Knox shrugs and pulls the plate to her side of the table. Knox has Abe drive around Manhattan for a while. She has an errand to run, and she's worried about being tailed. But when it comes to making cars disappear in the city, Abe is a virtuoso. He weaves his hack through heavily trafficked streets, under elevated train tracks, and down dark alleys until Knox sees the opportunity she's been looking for. Stop here, Abe. Abe frowns in the rear view, but does as she asks. It's a deserted side street on the Lower East Side. No other cars, no pedestrians, and no lampposts. Just a mailbox. Knox gets out, and for the twelfth time since getting into Abe's cab, she checks the address on the padded envelope containing the Black Sea Codex. Morgan Knox Alvarez. Care of Ellen Jacobs. New York City Morgue. Bellevue Hospital. 462 First Avenue, New York City. Knox sighs and hopes she isn't making a terrible mistake. Then she opens the drop and lets the envelope fall. Knox walks into her apartment and immediately notices something is off. The voices and car noises coming from outside tell her one of her windows is open. She flips on the light switch. Her apartment's been trashed. No, not trashed. Searched. The disarray isn't random. It's deliberate. Methodical. Lots of things are out of place or overturned, but very little has been destroyed outright. She draws her sidearm and looks around, moving through the apartment with slow, deliberate steps. As far as she can tell, absolutely nothing is missing. And when she's satisfied that whoever was here is long gone, she sets the revolver down and closes the window. She should call this in. Yeah, and tell them what? Where would I even begin? She's too tired to deal with this now. Too tired to deal even with setting aright her stripped and flipped mattress. The couch will have to do. She washes up, puts on a fresh pair of flannel pajamas, grabs a blanket, and turns off the light. Her window is turning blue with the approaching dawn. Before she drifts off, she sees it under her coffee table. A scrap of pink, clashing with the black and red of her living room rug. She picks it up and holds it, close to her eyes. A lily petal. You're listening to The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox, narrated by Pilar Uribe. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, 
a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. The Shadow Files of Morgan Knox is written by Kay Arsenault Rivera, Brooke Bolander, Gabino Iglesias, and Sonny Moraine. Produced by Marco Palmieri and executive produced by Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.